Thank you for joining the Home Church Podcast. For more information about Home Church, visit us at myhomechurch.org. So I don't know if you guys uh, saw, but um, last week there's been an incredible move of God that's happening in Kentucky in Asbury uh, College where the Lord has worked actually previously in the 70s and uh, they have not been able to stop stop <laughs> their gathering now for almost a week straight. Uh, they're seeing incredible things happen um, and college kids are there and then going back to their college campuses. So I just encourage you and all the things that we've been talking about and sharing that it's really amazing. You can probably go on YouTube right now and watch the live services that are taking place, but the altars are filled with young, uh, old, uh, all, all different types, but it's really amazing to see especially the young at this hour that are just um, fully turning to the Lord. Uh, so we'll get to that in a moment. Um, we're going to uh, <laughs> we're gonna switch gears a little bit from where we just were um, with, uh, with baby dedication, but I, I, I really feel strongly the Lord has pressed something on my heart that I, I just couldn't let linger another week. And honestly, I feel like it was really starting to get locked in in, in worship, and I believe that God is going to um, do something beautiful. I want you to know my heart this morning is that I believe Jesus is, he is so serious about freedom, and, and he came to set free, and I, I believe he's going to do that. I believe he is. I mean real freedom, not just something that's superficial, but real freedom from the inside out. But in order to experience that, um, just like when you go to a doctor, in order to find healing, there first needs to be a right diagnosis. And I, I really feel strongly that we're, we're in an hour right now that we really need to recapture what, what sin is in order that we could really understand what Jesus has come to do. And I, I've just been, over the last few months, have stepped back and just been observing some of the things that have happened and transpired in our culture, and I'm always hesitant to just speak a message in light of what I see, because if, if you're not careful, you can actually be living in response to the enemy and not in response to God. And Jesus, Jesus didn't say, I only do what I see the enemy doing, and I counter that. He says, I only do what the Father's doing. Now, when the enemy showed up, he defeated it, but he lived in alignment with the Father. And so there's, there's, I'm not always just quick to jump in, but I do feel as I step back, there is some serious red flags that are uh, alarming would be um, alarming would be an understatement, and, and I believe that we really need to lock into some, some, some core truths as the church. And most recently, one of the things that gripped my heart was that I, this actually dates back uh, a few years now. In 2008, I found, found this out, but it's regarding the Oxford Junior Dictionary, okay? So just bear with me for a moment, uh, but this will come together. Um, our language is dynamic, meaning it's ever-changing. So we have words that uh, we're saying today that we didn't say a year ago, 10 years ago, especially 100 years ago. We have new words today that didn't exist, like Google it. <laughs> that didn't exist 50 years ago. At the same time, we have words that we once used that are now falling into a category of being outdated, and we remove them from the dictionary. So the Oxford Junior Dictionary, which is geared towards seven to like preteens, I believe, I found out that in 2008, they made a decision to remove a number of words. I don't know how often they do that. And to be fair, they didn't just pick certain things that are tied to Christianity. They just followed the standard protocol that when a word falls into irrelevancy, it it's falls into disuse, you remove it. And what really caught my attention, though, is that one of the words they removed in 2008 was sin. They had removed it from the, again, this is the Oxford Junior Dictionary, and again, their definition or reason for it was quite simple. They said the younger generations have no basis for it, no grid for it. It doesn't mean anything to them. That sin has now become, in essence, outdated, outmoded. It's an archaic word. 
and we have no bearing for it. And man, I just, I just begin to sit on this. And when you see in light of some other things that have taken place, I believe that's merely just one symptom that's revealing a much deeper issue. That we really have a culture that has lost touch with God, what's right, what's wrong. And, and here's what's really one of the things that's pressing in my heart is that you've got now a culture that's operating with almost an indifference towards sin or even a celebration of it. But what we find is that when Paul describes and summarizes the plight of humanity, like why do we see the brokenness that we see in our lives in this world? This is how Paul summarized it in Romans 5.12. He says, therefore sin came into the world. Paul's summary statement for all of the brokenness we see is this. Sin came into the world, and because of that, death came into the world because all have sinned, and sin breeds death. So here you have something that by Scripture says that it breeds brokenness, bondage, death, and yet we have a culture that is removing it and actually emboldening people to celebrate that which is bringing them into bondage. So more than ever, I believe we need, we need the church to have a right revelation of what sin really is, where there's so much confusion, we need a people that are, are really walking with the right understanding of what this does. Because I want you to see that sin is what gives access to the influence of demonic influence in people's lives. And so without even recognizing it, they're engaging in things that's literally destroying their life. Literally destroying their life and have no, no idea about it. And so I believe we need, we need a church that has clarity on this, not for the sake of knowing sin for sin's sake, but that we would actually know how Christ is the remedy for this. That's the heart today, guys. I want you to know that I, I don't want to just speak on sin for the sake of sin's sake. Because if you know our heart, the pathway to ultimate freedom is not just to be a sin, sin conscious. We need to be Christ conscious. Yet at the same time, Paul, who constantly called us to look upon the Lord, laid out very clearly that there are real consequences and real things that happen from sin. And my desire today is to speak on this in order to compel us into the freedom that Christ has purchased that we would actually see that as being born again and born of him who is righteous, him who is light, it's completely incompatible for one who's been born of the righteous one to continue to practice in whatever it may be. That actually stands in complete opposition to that. So my, my heart this morning is that as a people, we'd have right understanding, and as we talk about this, that it would actually deepen our abhorrence for these things. That actually when we start to think about the nature of sin, the origin of sin, the fruit of sin, like sin has fruit, it actually it does. Some of it's immediate, some of it's long-term, but know this, there's fruit to it. This is why, guys, this is why New Testament writers, they never once talk about letting it linger in your life. If you hear the New Testament writers, here's some of the imagery they give. Kill it, crucify it, put it to death, cut it off, gouge it out, cast it away. Every single time you get close to it, they say do not mess around with it at all because as we'll actually see, this thing is what opens doors in our lives to unhealthy influence. And the way that we're going to see you close those doors is you repent, you break agreement, and you get set free. And God's going to set people free this morning. Not just, I'm not just talking to people that know the Lord, but for those that are in Christ. So we need to recapture what, biblically, really what sin is so that we can understand Christ as the remedy in this world where, again, there's so much confusion and relativity and they're just not able to really make sense of what's right and what's wrong. But the scriptures say, Romans 4.25, it says that he was delivered up for our sins. If you remove sin, the whole idea of Christ being delivered up begins to unravel as to why this had to take place. And let me be abundantly clear. I wholeheartedly believe that the greatest summary of the gospel is love. 
God demonstrated love, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. But you and I can't properly understand the magnitude of that love without understanding the, the reality and the depths of what sin has done. It, it would be no different. This is how I was thinking about it. It would be like me going to a neighbor's house, knocking on his door, and saying, I love you so much, and then running into the middle of the street to get hit by a car. <laughs> I died for you because I love you so much. You would say, that wasn't love, that's insanity. <laughs> Why would you ever do that? So when we present a gospel message that says God loves you, but we remove the reality and the understanding of what sin is, it has no bearing. It actually becomes excessive. It becomes unreasonable. It even borders into the realm of lunacy. Why would a God die for me? Why would love be expressed through death? Well, only if I use that same example, you understood that the same neighbor I said that I loved, he was in the street with the car barreling down on him. <laughs> and I removed him out of the road in order to absorb what was fully coming to him. Then we would say what love was expressed. <laughs> We must understand it. Like I shared the scripture before that there was a debt that stood over all of us. That means we had a debt for the wages of sin is death. And it wasn't just a neutral debt. It was actually demanding something. To stand over means it's an opposition. It's saying you, des you, you owe me payment. <laughs> and Christ came in and he doesn't just push it aside. He cancels it. He shreds it. He fulfills it and crushes it for us. Like the mercy of God. Amen. Happy baby dedication. <laughs> so we're going we're gonna to go deep into this, but I'm we, we need it. We need it, guys. If you go look on TV and, and the things that are going on, it's, it's really, it's, it's an understatement to say appalling as to where we're finding. We're finding entertainment in things that Christ has died for. And, and we're not understanding that, you know, I'll just share this right now. Look at this scripture right here. 1 John 5, 19. John says, we, knew, we know that we are from God. He's speaking to believers. But then he says this, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now just hear me on this. We're not going to get into all of the background, but God in his infinite wisdom, we need to understand first he's permitted this. He's not losing any battle. This isn't God's wisdom. He's actually allowed this. God is king. God is, God is ruler of all. But in God's wisdom, this is a reality that Satan actually is pictured as having power. Power, it says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. What does that mean? It lies in his grip, in his influence, in his authority. The question is, where did that happen? How did that happen? Did this just happen at random? No, it's what I said in Romans 5.12, when sin came into the world. How was he empowered over this world when sin? Adam gave him access to his life and to this world by sin. When we sin, we actually give access to him to have authority over our life. We, he has no authority as a born-again believer, but we actually open doors when we willfully engage in things that God has actually set us free from. Amen? Like, this is really serious. This is why when we're engaging in things and settling in places and I'm so depressed, I'm so this, what's happening? <laughs> Guys, this, this is the, the fruit. It's the fruit of what we're sowing. But the good news is those doors can be shut immediately. We repent, we break agreement, and you get set free from that. <laughs> but if we don't talk about this, we just stay in it. We actually embolden people into death. Listen, we are, we are meant to be the most gentle, compassionate people towards the people. But as we'll see today, we should hate sin. When we understand that it actually brings people into captivity, into bondage, we should hate it. But we should not be more compassionate to the work of Satan than to the work of God. God's come to liberate. Why would I ever give someone permission to stay there? If I love them, I will show love for the person, but call them out of that. 
All right, let's go to 1 John 3, please. We'll come back to that 1 John 5 in a moment. 1 John 3. Thank you, Lord. So again, as you're turning there, the aim of this is to point us into the revelation of Christ. His awesomeness, His grace, His mercy, His kindness, His freedom. Oh, man, this for me. Guys, obedience, obedience is not religion. A lot of times, hey, it's, if you see someone really obedient, oh, you're so religious. You're just a holy roller. Listen to me. What we're about to read is, is actually sin. Sin is slavery. Obedience is life. What, what, what we're sharing is, is not about being these holy rollers. It's the key to life. This is such good news that Jesus says you don't have to stay there anymore. That you can actually be so transformed that you can break off old habits, cycles, addictions, whatever it may be, and live in the new life. It's not because we can read this and say, oh, he said he's going to remove sin. And it's like, now you're going to do this. It's like, oh, man, this is such a heavy-handed thing. No, this is, he's come to liberate. This is how we're being liberated. Because why? Sin is what opens doors and gives access to the power of the evil one over this world in our lives. This is freedom. So 1 John 3, um, I'm going to read a section, verses 4 to 10. But let me, um, yeah, let me, let me summarize this. I want, because I don't want there to be any confusion. John some of this will show up in what we're about to say. Some of it won't. But it will help you filter what I'm about to, what we read. John is essentially writing, as many of the New Testament writers, he's writing to combat a group of individuals who have come into this church and essentially have presented themselves as genuine believers, but they're actually not. So what John is actually writing to do is he's writing to expose the false professors of faith versus the actual genuine possessors of the faith. Does that make sense? So one of the things you'll often see in John's letter here is he'll say, if anyone says, if anyone says, he'll say this expression over and over. But then he'll say, but if they do this. What he's trying to show you is someone who merely professes but doesn't have genuine possession of the faith in Christ. So John has this double-edged sword. On one side, he's revealing those who merely profess, but at the same time, he's also confirming those who really do possess to the faith. That's important, guys, because the heart of this as was John's heart, was not to instill fear into believers to get them to start questioning their stability before God. That's not my heart. That's not my desire. Actually, what John was doing was strengthening believers. He says in 1 John 5, verse 13, he summarized it by saying, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Lord that you may know that you have eternal life. So what he's saying is part of the reason why I'm writing is to expose what's false, but in the same time that it would confirm you who are in the faith that you would have confidence you would have assurance when you look at your life that you truly belong to God. So that's my hope today, that all would be called unto the Lord, and that if you're in the Lord, you would know, and if not, you would hear God's voice calling you into that today. So what John will do is he runs through these tests of life, if you will. And he, does, he has three tests, and he'll repeat it three times. He'll go through a doctrinal test, which is basically, you'll see him do this over and over. He'll say, no one can be in Christ if he denies that Christ came in the flesh, something along those lines. He'll go through a social test. He'll say, you cannot actually say you abide in God who is love but not love your brothers. He'll repeat this test over and over. And then finally, he'll go through a moral test, which is we cannot claim to be born of him who is light and righteousness, while meanwhile our lives are actually living completely contradictory to that. 
So this is the test that we're going to look at. It's the moral test. And John is going to build his argument of leading us into holiness through two things. He's going to discuss the nature of sin, and then he's going to discuss the origin of sin. Okay? And we're going to learn a lot about what sin is in order, again, to deepen our repulsion of it. <laughs> to realize, say, I don't want to give any place. I want to kill it, crucify it. I want to get it out of my life. So here's verse 4. 1 John 3. It says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Okay, <laughs> stop there. There are multiple, there's a few times in scripture where sin is given a definition. Romans 14, 23 says anything not done in faith is sin. James 4, 17 says that when you know what you ought to do and not do it, that is sin. You see a few variations, but nowhere is a more clearer, more revealing definition given than here. John, right off the bat, says everyone, there's no exception, who makes a practice of sinning, I'll unpack that in a moment, also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. What does that mean? Sin, at its core, is rebellion against the revealed will of God. This is very important. Sin is asserting the will of self against the revealed will of God, against the authority of God. No matter what we want to call it, claim it, this is actually at the heart of it what we're doing. We can have off days, bed, I get all of that, and I get they all mix into it, but at the heart of it, when we're doing something that we know that God has told us not to do, what we're actually doing is we're in rebellion towards the revealed will of God. Now, why is this so significant on many levels? 1 Samuel 15.3 says rebellion is the spirit of witchcraft. So sin is rebellion against the revealed will of God and says when you engage in rebellion, you're actually not operating by the spirit of God. It's the spirit of witchcraft. What does that mean? Who is the father of rebellion? Satan. Anytime we actually rebel against the will of God, we start imitating him. See, this is why we need right definitions of what sin is because a lot of times the definitions that are proposed remove the responsibility of man. And by doing that, we actually become victims rather than realizing it's a choice that we're making to say, I won't do that, God. I will do my own thing. And as long as you do that, you won't get out of it. And we actually sanitize it and we domesticate what sin is. But sin in scriptures, going back to Genesis, God told Cain, he says, Cain, sin is crouching out the door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. It's not domesticated. He says sin is like a beast, and it wants you. Now, we're going to share the good news is God, by the new nature, has given you everything you need, but the reality is that sin is not passive. It's desiring to have. And when we give in, it's actually active rebellion against the Lord. Yes? <laughs> so look, it's more than a personality problem. <laughs> it's, it's not, it's, uh, man, it's more than just a failure. It's more than a mistake. Like, I just was, wasn't feeling this. I'm going through this. I get it. We're going through it, and God is it's so gracious. But we, might, we actually have to understand that what, at the heart of it is we know God's telling us to do something. We're saying, no, I want to do it this way. <laughs> and in order for us to actually loathe sin, we must recapture the sinfulness of sin. We have to recapture what it is. Like, when, I, when God started speaking these things, there are so many things in my life that I was just, like, letting go, saying, well, what am I going to do, God? I just, I'm waiting for a future day. And it's like, this started to produce a deep hatred in my heart for that thing. Because we love King Jesus. <laughs> so when we understand, we say, God, I don't want to come against that. This is why when we see someone else in, in that type of compromise, we love them deeply, but we would never co-sign that because what we're actually co-signing is rebellion against the authority of Jesus. 
And if we love Jesus, we never want that. And when we understand that what, this, what these doors open up, the very things that Jesus came to set us free from, it would be so unloving to just let someone go into that. So sin is lawlessness. Now look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, you know that he appeared. This is Christ. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. <laughs> so not only is sin lawlessness, but then John says, what John's trying to do is get us to reflect on the very purpose for Christ's incarnation. And he's saying, you know that when Christ appeared, he came in the flesh. Here's why he came. He came to take away sin. And in him, is in no, uh, in him there is no sin. He, he bore our sin in his body. Now, look at verse 6. This is so important. John is going to come to a logical conclusion based off of this. If sin is lawlessness, and if Christ, when he appeared, in him was no sin, and he came to remove sin from us, look at verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Here's, here's John's point. John's saying, how can... If Christ came to remove sin and in him is, is no sin, how could we simultaneously abide in something and say we abide in him? John's actually saying when we do that, any sin, but even when, especially when we're abiding, we're actually waging war against the very purpose for which Christ came. He manifested with no sin to take away sin. Yet then when we give ourselves to that, we're actually standing in stark contrast and opposition to the very purpose for which he came. John said this, wouldn't, this can't be. Now, this is really important, though, to, to make sure we understand what John's saying. He says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning with, with an ING. And he keeps saying this, this over and over. No one can uh, uh, make the practice of sinning. This is so critical. John, to encourage, to make sure you, you, you are concrete in where you're at, John is not speaking about isolated acts of sin. John's not denying the reality that Christians can sin. In fact, in chapter 1, John says, anyone who claims he's without sin deceives himself, and makes God a liar. And then he goes on to say, and if you do sin, I, I write this so that you don't sin, but if you do, know this, you have an advocate for, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. John is very well aware. He's not preaching some uh, form of perfectionism here. But what John is saying, he says, there is a difference, though, for a believer. Even though there will be isolated acts, even though we may have specific areas that we're really struggling in, what he's saying here is that an unbeliever, the entirety of their life will be categorized as rebellion towards God. This isn't about an isolated act. It's about a settled habit. It's, it's about persistent, uh, habitual, unrepentant. It's when there is zero response in the human heart to what God is doing. John says that's where you know something's wrong. Because even when we're born again, what God is saying is when, when we're born of a new nature, when there's sin in our life, here's what will happen. You're going to feel conviction. You're going to feel there's that godly sorrow. There's even that, there's that tension, right? The, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Like, God even understands that. At times, we engage in things because our flesh is weak, but internally, we're like, Ugh, I hate that I do that. Be encouraged. That uh, it reveals that you belong to God. <laughs> even that belongs that God is yours. Now, God has something more than just a poor attitude towards sin. He wants us to actually overcome and walk in it. But, but to, to understand, what John is writing is he's, he's talking about unresponsive persistence in something. Like, we're not even moved by the reality that what we're doing is so in contradiction to what the Lord has said. John says to that person, it's impossible to claim you know God, to be in fellowship with God, who is righteousness. So verse 7, he says, little children, let no one deceive you. He kind of summarizes what, he's, what we've been saying. 
Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. And now here's where John moves from the nature of sin to the origin of sin. In verse 8, and this is such an important verse for us. It says, whoever makes a practice of sinning. There it is. It's a practice. I want, I want you guys to understand that. I want you looking at your life and being, oh my goodness, where do I stand? Although we want to have hatred towards any bit of sin, I want you to know that he's talking about an entire life where the whole inclination of man's soul is bent towards the opposite of what God desires. That's what he's getting at here. And so he says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. <laughs> That's John's words. <laughs> there's, there's no neutral ground here. There's no neutral ground. He says, you're of the devil. What does that mean? The devil's never created anyone. He's never made anyone. But what he's saying is you imitate him. You draw life from him. That's who you actually pull from, not from God. If the entirety of your life is in contradiction to God. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. That's the origin of sin. Not in God. In the devil. So when we do that, we're actually imitating him. But now look at the second part. So good. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. <laughs> so here we are. He's saying, no one born of God can remain in this. Anyone who practices sinning is born of the devil. He says, but the reason the Son of God appeared, why did Jesus come in the flesh? To destroy the works of him who's been sinning from the beginning. The works are manifold. Meaning that Satan's works are manifold. They're all connected to sin, but sin has fruit, as I said. The glorious news of the gospel is that the remedy is found in Christ and the cross for everything. Everything that sin opens the door to, sickness, demonization, broken relationships, guys. You look around. You see broken relationships, families. You know what that's from? That's sin. This should cause hatred for sin. That's what it meant to do. God, I don't want this. We pray for righteousness to be found in this. You see natural calamities. It's tied to sin. <laughs> Everything comes back to sin. But here's the glorious news. When Jesus came, he dealt with the penalty and the power of sin. Every effect of sin is dealt with at the cross. Everything. Even though sin is produced as broken as bondage, Jesus is reversing it and creating freedom for all those that turn to him. How is he doing it? He came to destroy the works of the devil. That literally means, destroy means to loose. So Satan's works are pictured as chains that bring bondage to people's lives. Sin brings bondage. Jesus came to loose people. <laughs> he came to set free. But this is why when we engage in sin, we, we need a deeper understanding of what sin really does. It's really important that, again, it's not just, man, I just had a, you know, I was in a bad mood. I, that's probably contributed. But what's happening, regardless of how we felt, whatever it was, is actually we're, we're willfully subjecting ourselves to what Christ has broken us free from. It's really, really important. <laughs> He's loosed us from something, and the only way that there can be that power back in our life is if we make agreement with it again. How do we do that? When we sin in it. And then we, but the glorious news is we repent and we get set free again. <laughs> you guys following with me? So Jesus declared a full-on assault on the works of the enemy in order to set us free. Now, the gospel, this is why the gospel is so powerful. At least one reason, because the gospel says for each and every one of us that we were not found in a neutral state. We weren't just lacking information about God and then we heard a message and said, oh, no, that's good. What the gospel says is that because of sin, we were actually in bondage. There was literally a power being exerted over your life and my life. Do, do you know that? 
Actually, there was a power working over our life, which means the gospel is so powerful because when Jesus comes, he's not just giving us information we didn't have. He's literally breaking a power that was over you, that was over me. The gospel is so powerful because it's a transferring of allegiance. I was once enslaved here, but now I'm set free. But the key to being transferred out of that is your sin being dealt with. I want you to see sin is the access point. It's very important. So again, I shared this text here that Satan is declared as having the power. Uh, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Where did that happen? Romans 5.12, when sin came into the world. It was when sin entered in that power was given. Sin was the access point to having power, authority over something, yes? If you could, um, I'm going to share a few scriptures. If you go to Acts 26, just look up here. I wanted to make it simple. This is where Paul is, uh, he's recalling his testimony, how he was saved on Damascus Road. He's before King Agrippa, and he's actually, these are actually Jesus' words, but Paul is recalling what Jesus said to him in that encounter, so you can follow along, and how God called him to the Gentiles. And here's why he was called, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. What happened here? He says, Paul, you're going to bring people out of the power of Satan to the power of God. What's going to be the key? Forgiveness of sins. If you go to the next one, Colossians. Look at Colossians. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That is powerful. We were in the dominion of darkness. We've now been brought out into the kingdom of his son, his beloved son. Verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What is the key again to that transference? Sin was dealt with. Forgiveness was offered and the power of sin was broken over our lives. Look at Ephesians 2. Paul describes our position prior to Christ. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. We were dead in sins in which you once walked. So we were, again, that's that idea of practicing. Our entire lifestyle was bound by sin. And look what it says as a result. We were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That phrase, following the prince of the power of the air, that is another descriptive term for Satan. So what it's saying is when we walked around in sin, what we were actually doing is we were following Satan. That's actually the truth. <laughs> so it doesn't matter. Like I was living it up before I knew the Lord. No, I was just having fun with some friends. I was just doing this. No, I was a slave to sin and I was actually a captive being led astray. I thought I was just living it up, but I was in bondage. And his desire is to steal, kill, and destroy. This is why when we see someone that goes into this path, our, a righteous zeal should arise. Because we don't want them to go down that. But the positive end of this is that Jesus has really dealt with sin in your life. Therefore, you're transferred out of darkness into the light. I'll finish. I'll come back. I'm going to share some scriptures, though, of, of again, this, this point is really in my heart that when we then come back to certain areas of sin. This is what we're opening doors back up to. Even though we're his, we're a child of God, I'll show you plenty of scriptures that actually reveal the, the real danger of that. But the point is that Jesus came to break a power of your life, and he does it by dealing with sin. And if you feel overwhelmed by how in the world could you maintain that freedom, John gives us one of the most glorious uh, truths in this next verse as to the reality that it's not your self-will, but something happens when you're born again. Look at verse 9. John says in verse 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, 
For why? For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. <laughs> this is such a glorious verse. John says, Jesus come to set you free. And then John says, here's how you'll know someone who's really of the Lord is even though there's areas of life that we can be struggling in and we want to we crush those things, the, the truth is what John is saying is that there's a certain extent that can go to, but overall you will know someone who's been born of God because he cannot keep on in an entire life that's in rebellion towards God. If you've been born again, he says something has happened, God's seed has come inside of you. See, this is so important. John says the God's seed is the new nature. It's God's nature now living inside of you. And John says when you get born again, God's nature comes inside of you. And God's nature is, is not a dormant seed. It is a seed that is exerting a power and a pressure towards holiness in your life. See, the answer for today, guys, is if there's bondage in our life, it's not just get up and try harder. But it's, it's first and foremost, you must be born again. If you're dead in sin... If you're in bondage, the answer is not just go out and try to have a better day. You need the new nature of God. You must be born from above. And the seed of God comes inside you, will prove itself out in your life. John is not at all fearful that his words will be contradicted. He's not at all fearful that somehow we'll find a Christian so captive in every single way. That he says, I don't know what to do with that. I, didn't, I wasn't prepared for that. John, what, John, what John would say to that back in chapter 2 is, no, that just shows that they actually never were born of God. But to one who's been born again of the Holy Spirit, John says he's working in your life. The answer this morning, again, is not just to, although there's decisions and, and things that we do, it's surrendering to the new nature of Christ that's living in you. Walking with Jesus. God is exerting this powerful life-giving power. It's a deep inward transformation. So freedom is found in being born again. God implanting his new nature in you. And God can change you this morning. I feel the Lord was just really highlighting the palpable mercy of God this morning. Isn't it amazing? We, we were in rebellion towards God. And God in mercy has made a way for us to be one with him and alive and free. That should, we should be undone. God, your mercy, your compassion that I was actually warring against your will, but you came and you rescued me. You saved me, God, and you made a way for me to be free. And then he says in verse 10, to summarize this, he says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother, which is where he'll go in the next test. But again, John says, guys, there's not... There's only two groups. <laughs> there's not three groups. There's no weird gray area. Well, I don't know. Where this, no, John says it's really clear. There's not even one group. This really breaks the idea of the universality of the fatherhood of God. Like, listen, he's father in the sense of a general sense. He's created all. But this is not saying that everyone is simply a child of God because they've been born. It's actually saying that you, your parentage is either divine or diabolical. It's one or the other. And you must be born of Christ to experience true sonship in the Father. It's the only way to be born of Him. Hallelujah. And He's ever-present this morning, and His mercy's abounding, and He's gracious, and He's calling on hearts to yield their lives, to go from death into life. So let me, let me finish out with this. I'm just going to... 
cut out a few things and go right to here. In a moment, I want to I pray. I want to pray for those that, that need the seed of God to be implanted in them. You would be alive in him. But at the same time, I want to be clear that although John says, although he's essentially wording that a Christian will be shown by the inability to go completely into depravity after he's been born of God, that if we take the full counsel of Scripture, we know that although a Christian may not go to that extreme, that there are certainly areas of our life that we can forfeit back. Uh, Paul writes often on this, and this is really important, and I want to also make room to pray for this, because just because we've been born again does not mean that Satan is no longer in pursuit of your life. It's really, really important that he's actually, scripturally it says that for believers, he still actively looks for a place in a believer's life. And the only way you can get that place is when access is given to him, a door is open. And the only way that can happen is when we make agreement with him and his nature, which is to rebel against the will of God, sin. So let me, let me just show you this so that this is really clear. Can you put on 2 Corinthians? I want you to just see this because this is for believers. Like, you may have opened something up in your life and God wants to shut the door this morning. Amen. Wants to shut the door this morning. If you, like, this is why ni nightmares, all of this stuff, it's real. And a lot of times, not only, but a lot of times it's tied back to uh, compromise. Do you, do, you know, do you know, actually, this is really, talk about some hard scriptures. Now, this is not always the case. This is why we need discernment. But do you know, one of the fruits of sin is sickness. Do you know in John 5, Jesus healed a man by the pool of Bethesda? Healed him, 38 years, radically healed. And then he says this, go and sin no more, or something worse may happen to you. We read right over that, but what is he saying? He's attributing, in this particular case, sin with bodily sickness. And he's saying if you return back to something, something worse may happen. He's actually talking about sickness. John 9, he does the same thing. In the beginning of John 9, Jesus uh, is going to heal a man who's blind, and the crowd say, tell us, was this the sins of his, his sins or the sins of his father? Jesus says, neither in this case. But what's interesting is Jesus does not say that's a crazy question to ask. All he says is, in this case, that's not what took place. In fact, in that same account at the end, Jesus will tell the, that man the same exact thing. He says, go and sin no more, or something worse may happen. John 5, uh, James 5 says, um, confess your sins to one another that you may find healing. It's making a connection between uh, sin and, and sickness. Again, that is by no means always the case, but the point is that s sin really opens doors to the work of Satan. This is why I know some people that they've prayed for healing over someone, nothing's happening. The Lord will then lead them to a word of knowledge that there's actually something they need to repent of. When they repent, that breaks the spirit of infirmity. So, so look, at, look at this. Um, I just want you to see, even though believers that... Your adversary is still pursuing, not to live in fear, but to, but to shut doors down, to kill, to crush, to crucify sin because of this reality. Paul was restoring a brother who was obviously in some type of sin and was excommunicated. And poor, Paul interestingly says, make sure you restore him or he will fall into excessive sorrow, which is depression. And then he says this, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, verse 11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. What's he saying? Paul says, you've got to restore this brother. If you let him linger there, his excessive depression will make him vulnerable to the design of Satan, to the plan of Satan, to the scheme of Satan. Like trauma actually opens doors to things. 
That's a whole nother message. But the point is that Satan has designs. He, that's a believer they're talking about. He's looking for a place. Look at us, 1 Timothy 3.7, please. This was to an elder. For, forget just a Christian. This is an elder. And it's talking in the previous verse, don't be conceited. Don't let, an elder should not be conceited. And then it says, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. That literally means into a trap. It, it's actually... It means hooks. He's looking to hook. He's looking for something to get a hold of. 1 Peter 5.8 says that he's constantly seeking who he may devour. Ephesians 4.26-27, it says, In your anger do not sin, or you may give a place to the devil. Literally, the word is an abode, a home. In that particular case, it says if you've got anger that's not dealt with, you actually open yourself up to give a place. You give real estate to Satan in your life because of sin that has not been properly processed. Now, that's anger, but it can be a lot of things. He's looking for a place. He's looking for an opportunity. We only can empower that when we engage in compromise that he is authoring. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7.5, Paul gives this writing on um, the importance of actually a husband and wife staying sexually active with one another. And he says, look, if you refrain from having sex with one another, he says, do it for a period. If God's called you into prayer, fasting, something like that. But when you're done, make sure that you come back together. If not, you will be vulnerable to temptation by Satan because of your lack of self-control. Again, it's looking for a place in someone's life. So I, I, I really feel that the Lord this morning wanted to um, set people free. And we don't need hype and, and anything like that. And, and I'm not looking to make an environment right now. I just can tell you this. I, I believe through just holding true to what the gospel says that if we, if we look to Jesus, if we repent and put our faith in Christ, Doors that were open will be shut. And places where there's been, been real brokenness will be closed. And if you don't know the Lord, the answer this morning is to be born from above. Amen? So why don't you stand with me? Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah, I'm going to just pray over us as a community. And then we're going to open the altars. We'll have a prayer team come on up for those who'd like to stay. Thank you for your presence here right now, Lord. Thank you for pulling on hearts, Holy Spirit. And we're asking right now, we ask, Holy Spirit, right now that you would reveal, that you would speak, that you would touch. Thank you, Jesus, that you've come to destroy the works of the devil. So I ask God, you would make so clear if there's areas that we have settled, Lord, settled in compromise. I'm asking God that today these doors are truly broken. They're shut, they're closed, they're removed. I thank you, God, for the gift of repentance. I thank you that with it we find times of refreshing. And I pray for those who feel weary and worn out. God, that in looking to you, you would, you would bring refreshing to them, God. Lord, for those who are so bound, I pray they would hear the love of the Father speaking over them. The hope of God this morning, that there is a way out. So we ask, God, that you would bless this time of prayer. God, that you would anoint 
every person that will lay hands and pray, that in every single way, every person that comes forward, Lord, that would, they would be truly delivered, that they would be truly set free. We ask this morning, God, that where places have been opened up, those places would be closed. God, that we would be a walking revelation to the world in an hour where there is so much confusion, that we'd be a people of righteousness and life and light. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're so happy you could join us on the Home Church Podcast. We pray this week's message encourages you to behold the Lord Jesus and bring his kingdom wherever you go. You can visit us online at myhomechurch.org, subscribe to our YouTube channel, or follow us on social media. If you would like to give to this ministry, text the amount to 84321. Bless you.